Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Holly, we have one of those episodes that a lot of people have been asking us to do for years. Uh, Indeed. we're, (laughs) We're only just now getting to it. We have had a lot of listener requests to talk about Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz, including from Bailey, Alyssa, Wendy, Arturo, Tressa, Shannon, Mariella, Jessica, Gail, Lindsay, Megan, and Siobhan. At least three of those uh, are folks who requested it when I asked for some topic suggestions on our Facebook page recently, and I'm sure we have had other requests as well uh, at this point. We can only look back through like four years or so of email and the rest of it is gone into oblivion. Well, and even some of those four years is gone (laughs) into oblivion. Thanks to a number of email migrations. Those, unfortunately, there are always casualties. Yes, yes. When, uh, (laughs) when, when... You are not the personal controller of your own email uh, because you work for a company. Then sometimes things happen that are beyond your control. Anyway, Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz lived in New Spain in the 17th century. That's in what's now Mexico. And she was the Spanish Empire's most widely published poet of her, of her time. Her work was read in both Spanish and Portuguese-speaking areas in Europe and the Americas and the Philippines. And her work has survived until today, but in terms of, like, her own personal thoughts and introspection, we don't have as much about a lot of her life. Consequently, her life has been just really subject to interpretation. It has been interpreted incredibly differently depending on who has been doing the interpreting. So, I mean, there's a lot of variety. You can you can get an almost totally different sense of who she was depending on exactly who is describing her. Also, her poetry is very complex, and she wrote in poetic forms that were common during the Spanish Golden Age that won't necessarily be familiar even to people who have studied poetry. Like, I have studied poetry, but I have studied poetry in English, and a lot of the poetic forms that she wrote in are totally unfamiliar to me. So if you studied Spanish language poetry specifically, in particular the new Spanish Baroque, that might all be uh, forms that you know about. Um, Not as easy to explain to uh, English speakers who don't have the familiarity. So this episode is a lot more about Sor Juana's life than it is about her work. Yeah, when I studied poetry in college, there was not really any delving into the new Spanish Baroque. (laughs) No. Well, then it's, it has the added layer of complexity of if, if you are not a fluent speaker of Spanish, you're reading a translation into English and translating Poetry is particularly difficult because of how poetry works. Yes. I learned that primarily from Charles Baudelaire. Uh, Not Spanish, but similar translation issues. Not nearly as beautiful or melodic to my ear in English, but... Well, and one of the things that uh, one one of my literature professors told us when I was in college was that... Baudelaire was the person who translated Poe into French. Mm-hmm. So Poe's poetry in French is incredibly beautiful in a way that it isn't necessarily in English. It really is. Like, the cadence of it is really beautiful. It uh, it has its own rhythm that is not the way it reads in English. I also love Poe in English, but there is a whole, it's like a whole different writer, essentially, um, which is kind of illustrative of what you were saying. Like, anytime you're translating and then interpreting and extrapolating someone's 
essence from their written work and poetry that has been uh, shifted around, you're going to get different versions of who that person was. Yep. If you only read Poe in French, I bet you would think he was slightly different than he really was in real <laughs> life. So, applying this to today's topic, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz was born Juana Ramirez de Esbahi in San Miguel Nepantla, which is southeast of Mexico City. Her mother was Isabel Ramirez de Santillana, who was a Criolla woman. That is, she was of Spanish descent, but she was born in New Spain. And her father was Pedro Manuel de Esbahi, who Juana described as Basque. He had come to the Americas from Europe. And Juana was the youngest of three daughters who were born to Isabel and Pedro. Juana's date of birth isn't clear, as is the case with a lot of people born this long ago. Some sources note it as November 12, 1651, But there's also a baptismal record from her parish that's probably hers, and that was dated December 2nd, 1648. This record notes the baptism of a girl named Inez whose godparents were Isabel Ramirez's brother and sister, so her maternal uncle and aunt. This record also describes the young Inez as daughter of the church, which meant that her parents weren't married to one another. Sometime after Juana was born, her father left the family, and we do not know why that happened or where he went. We don't even actually know exactly when it happened. It was by the time Juana was five or six years old, but it was probably earlier than that. Inez took her children to live with her father at his hacienda, known as Panoaya, and this was one of two haciendas that he was leasing from the church, which had a workforce of enslaved Africans and indigenous people. Enslavement of indigenous people had been outlawed in New Spain, although working conditions for indigenous people still tended to be abusive and exploitive. This family wasn't especially affluent, but they were relatively comfortable and stable. And they were able to send Juana's older sister, Josefa Maria, to a local school that was being run by a woman in the community for the benefit of its less wealthy children. When she was about three years old, Juana sneaked away from home and followed her sister to school and then told the teacher that her mother had ordered that she get lessons too. In Juana's account, this teacher did not believe her, but she found the whole thing so charming that she gave Juana lessons anyway. And Juana learned so quickly that by the time her mother realized what she was doing and put a stop to it, she already knew how to read. Aside from that and about 20 lessons in Latin, this was Juana's only formal education. But once she knew how to read, Juana started educating herself. She started with her grandfather's library. She would take the books from the shelves and then go hide in the hacienda's chapel to read them undisturbed. Juana did not have a lot of choice in what she studied. The books that were available to her were the ones in her grandfather's library, and that was that. But she dedicated herself to whatever she had at hand. And to motivate herself, she would cut a few inches off of her hair, intending to master a particular subject by the time it grew back. And if she failed, she would cut more of her hair off. She said, quote, It did not seem to me reasonable that I dress the hair of a head naked of knowledge, which was a more appreciable adornment. When she learned that there was a university in Mexico City, but that only men were allowed to attend, she begged her mother to let her dress as a boy so that she could go. Yeah, her mother did not go for this plan. I think she was also still a small child. She was too young in addition to being a girl, (laughs) too young to go to university. But yeah, there was no way her family was going to allow her to do that. 
In January of 1656, when she was about eight, Juana's grandfather died. And at about the same time, her mother started a relationship with a man named Diego Ruiz Lozano, although they also never married. Isabel and Diego had two daughters and a son together. And sometime as all of this was happening, Juana was sent to Mexico City to live with her mother's sister. All of these changes probably played a part in her going to Mexico City, but the exact reasons for Juana's departure aren't documented anywhere. And we also don't know whether her older sisters were also sent to live somewhere else at the same time. But we do know that Juana's half-siblings had better prospects for their futures than Juana and her sisters did. All six of them had been born to unwed parents, although that was not as stigmatized as folks may imagine. In terms of religion, New Spain was very strictly Catholic, but at the same time, people seemed to recognize and accept that people who were not married to each other might have babies together. The family doesn't seem to have been looked down on or ostracized because of any of this, and several people within the family went on to marry prominent, respected men, attend university, or find careers in the church or the military. I think people imagine that if if you had children and you were unmarried, that your whole family might be immediately shunned from society and you had to hide forever. And that just doesn't seem to be how things were actually working when and where Juana was living. More important than the children's birth was the fact that Diego Ruiz Lozano had some money and he was present in his children's lives. So Juana's half-sisters all had dowries and they had a father to negotiate for them in their marriages. Juana had none of that. She did have some relatives who could offer some protection, though. Her mother's sister, Maria, had married a wealthy man named Juan de Mata. And we know very little of her life over the next few years, except that she was extremely precocious and continued to be very eager to learn. By age 13, she was teaching Latin to others, and she also taught herself Nahuatl. She also grew into an attractive young woman, which caught the attention of New Spain's nobility. We will get to that after a quick sponsor break. In the 17th century, New Spain was ruled by a viceroy who acted as the crown's presence in the Americas. The viceroy was sent to the Americas from Spain, and to try to ensure that the viceroy would be loyal to the crown, but also not become too powerful, viceroys were given limited terms. The standard term was technically three years, but often the actual assignment was more like seven or eight. A lot of viceroys were given an extension before they'd even left from Europe. Relocating someone all the way across the ocean every three years seems like a lot. (laughs) Antonio Sebastián de Toledo, Marquis de Mancera, began serving as viceroy of New Spain in 1664. And he arrived with his wife, Doña Leonor Careto. Juana's aunt and uncle presented her at court, and Juana, at the age of 16, was selected to be a lady-in-waiting to the viceroy, who was in her early 30s. Juana lived at court from the age of 16 until she was about 20, and she became known as a court prodigy. One of the most famous stories from these years is that the viceroy brought in a panel of 40 scholars to try to test her intellect. And in his words, quote, in the manner of a royal galleon defending itself against a few small sloops that had assailed it, did Juana Inez free herself of the questions, arguments, and objections that so many, each in his own class, propounded. It's likely that this story was exaggerated at least somewhat, but the viceroy sure did love to tell it, so... 
probably some version of it really did happen. Probably also the collective memory of everyone involved shifted to match what the Viceroy said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not the only, you know, examination of a person by a team of scholars that we've talked about on the show that is probably a little embellished. Yeah. Being at court would have given Juana lots of resources to continue educating herself. Although she studied literature and is best known for her writing, Juana was also interested in science, astronomy, medicine, and law. She also wrote extensively, although most of her poems are not dated, so we don't always know when any particular poem was written. Her poetry included love poems, including ones written to the Vicerine. And in these poems, she refers to the Vicerine as Laura, which is a reference to Petrarch's sonnets. These were socially acceptable given the vast differences in the two women's positions. It was more like a troubadour writing a courtly love sonnet to a lady than a lover writing a poem to someone who was considered their equal or their partner. There's a lot of speculation about Juana's time at court. A lot of her writings suggest to people that she had some firsthand experience with love. Her poetry especially is really evocative of all the feelings that can come along with a passionate or stormy love affair, including affection and jealousy and betrayal and the joy of requited feelings. A lot of these poems are also erotic, but at the same time, there is a lot that we just don't know, which has led people to wonder whether Juana had a tragic love affair at court, and if so, who it was with and what that person's gender was. This tickles me a little because I certainly know that I have read the writing of people who have never had a romantic relationship who write as though they did. So For it, sure. it's kind of funny to think, like, she must have been involved with someone. Look what she wrote. I'm like, not necessarily. She may have just been perceptive. Yeah. Uh, as we noted earlier, the vice regency of New Spain was a temporary position. Juana seemed to have been very comfortable, cared for, and liked during her time at court. But she also knew that once the viceroy and vicerine went back to Spain, there was no guarantee that she would find herself similarly favored by their replacements. It was also incredibly unlikely that she would find a husband while she was at court. Number one, most of the men at court were already married. They did like to flirt. There were for sure dalliances and affairs, but they were already married. No, I'm not saying there were necessarily affairs with her, just they existed. <laughs> uh, also, number two, marriages were negotiated between families, and Juana didn't have anybody at court who could be negotiating on her behalf. Number three, she still had no dowry. More important than all of that, though, she just didn't want to get married. Even if she did have a dowry, it was incredibly unlikely that a husband would just allow her to continue on with her self-educating and her writing, rather than expecting her to leave all that behind and take up the duties of a wife. She said she felt a, quote, total antipathy towards marriage. So she decided to become a nun. As was true for many other women at the time, this was more of a practical decision than a religious calling. Juana was a devout Catholic, but she had never expressed a desire to devote herself to a religious life. Instead, she recognized that a convent was the place that she was most likely to be able to continue on with her course of study and writing. One flaw in this plan was that women whose parents were not married were not generally allowed to join. So Juana said her birth was legitimate, something she repeated at numerous points throughout her life, even though it seems to have been common knowledge that her parents were not married. Religious orders and convents in New Spain were stratified and segregated in the same way that the rest of the general society was. 
Different convents had different levels of wealth. Some of them were only open to people directly from Spain, and others were open only to Criollo women. The first one that Juana joined was the convent of the Discalced Carmelites of St. Joseph, but she was only there for a few months. Some sources say that she left because of her health, but there's really no record of that. It is more likely that she just found this particular order way too restrictive for her tastes. About 18 months later, she tried again. On February 24, 1669, she became Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz at the convent of Santa Paula of the Hieronymite Order in Mexico City. In the minds of many in Mexico City, this was the best possible outcome, not just for Juana, but for society as a whole. Intelligent women were regarded as a threat, and so were beautiful women. Her Jesuit confessor, Antonio Nunez de Miranda, said that he rejoiced once she was in a convent because her continuing to be in the public eye had the potential to cause a lot of harm thanks to how beautiful and learned she was. This convent was a little different from the very spare, minimal existence that might immediately come to mind. Each woman joining the convent was required to provide a dowry. The convent of Santa Paula had an average of between 3,000 and 4,000 pesos for the dowries that its nuns provided. Sor Juana's dowry was provided by Pedro Velasquez de la Cadena. Sor Juana also had a few hundred pesos of her own, which had been given to her while she was at court, and she willed that to her mother. The nuns lived in spacious cells that were more like apartments with their own small kitchens. Sor Juana bought one in 1691 that had two floors. A nun's servants lived with her, as did any children or young women they were sheltering or teaching. Although the nuns, in theory, lived communally, these rules were not strictly observed in Sor Juana's convent. Many of the nuns ate food prepared in the kitchens in their own cells rather than eating with their religious sisters. The convent as a whole was supported by a staff of servants, some of whom were enslaved. Sor Juana's mother gave her an enslaved servant the year that she joined the convent, and this woman's name is listed as Juana de San Jose. Then in 1684, Sor Juana sold Juana de San Jose and her baby to her sister, Josefa Maria, for 250 pesos. On average, there were three maids for each nun at this convent, so it's very likely that Sor Juana had other servants who were either free or enslaved while she was living there. They're just not specifically documented anywhere. Altogether, about 200 women were living in the convent. Daily life in the convent was broken up into a regular pattern of prayers, meals, and other religious duties. It was a very predictable and regimented pattern. At the same time, there was a lot of time for chatter and gossip, which really annoyed Sor Juana. To her, the place seemed like a hotbed of ongoing petty jealousies and intrigues, and she often wrote about settling into study only for one of her sisters to come in and gossip, or of being interrupted by someone playing an instrument or having a loud conversation, or otherwise being disruptive. At the same time, the convent was relatively permissive in terms of things like personal wealth. There wasn't a strictly enforced vow of poverty for any of these nuns. So Sor Juana turned her cell into her personal library. She had at least 1,500 volumes and possibly as many as 4,000. She also collected scientific and musical instruments. The convent was also pretty lax about visitors. The nuns didn't really leave the convent, but they welcomed visitors and entertainers frequently. Sor Juana turned the locutorio, or the sitting area where the nuns were allowed to have visitors, into a literary salon. 
The nuns were technically supposed to keep their faces veiled when they met with outsiders, but this really wasn't enforced either. So the decision to join a convent and to join this particular convent, given how permissive it was, was an incredibly savvy move in terms of what Sir Juana wanted out of life. She had various prayers and duties that she had to tend to throughout the day, but she was also able to keep studying and learning and writing and making a name for herself both within and outside of the convent. We'll talk about her most productive years after we first pause for a little sponsor break. Overall, Sorwana seems to have been pretty well-respected within her convent. The nuns elected women from among themselves to serve as Mother Superior and in other important positions, and at various points, Sorwana was elected to be an archivist and a bookkeeper. As bookkeeper, she also did an excellent job at managing the convent's funds and interests. She also taught music and drama at the convent's school, and it's possible that she was a painter. One of the portraits that we have of her as labeled as being copied from one that was made by her own hand. She may have also painted miniatures, including things like the medallion that she wore as part of her religious dress, but no examples of her painting survives if that was the case. Viceroy Antonio Sebastián de Toledo was recalled to Spain in 1673. In the following year, his wife, Leonor Carreto, died. Sor Juana wrote three sonnets to commemorate her passing. Other than that, Sor Juana's first decade at the convent seems to have been pretty quiet, although members of the church hierarchy did sometimes admonish her to spend more of her time on religious matters rather than all of this secular study and writing. Then in 1680, Tomás de la Cerda, the third Marquess of La Laguna, became New Spain's new viceroy. His wife, Maria Luisa, was almost exactly the same age as Sor Juana, and the two of them became very close. The viceroy visited Sor Juana frequently at the convent and arranged for the publication of her work. Over time, Sor Juana became something of an unofficial court poet from within the walls of the convent. Sor Juana wrote Maria Luisa numerous passionate love poems, addressing her as Lisi or Lisida, and they were generally more passionate and intimate than the ones that she had written to Doña Leonor Careto. And as with those earlier poems, these didn't really attract a lot of notice, thanks to the huge gap in status between the two women. It was really such a gulf that Sor Juana often referred to herself as the viceroy and vicereign's servant, or even sometimes their slave. Like we said earlier, a lot of Sor Juana's work is undated, so it's not always possible to tell exactly when she wrote a particular piece. But we do know that she demonstrated immense skill in the multiple poetic forms that were valued during the Spanish Golden Age. She wrote plays in verse, which were preceded by short theatrical works known as loas. She wrote liturgical musical works known as viancicos. She wrote at least 20 love sonnets and at least 40 sonnets on other subjects, as well as ballads that were known as romances. The piece that's considered her masterpiece translates into English's first dream, and it is a very long, complex, philosophical poem. And her range with all of this work was huge. It spanned from the body and erotic to cloak-and-dagger drama to religious work. She wrote a satirical poem called Ombre Necios, or Foolish Men, in which she pointed out the double standards in the behavioral expectations of men and women. She also incorporated multiple languages and dialects, including the Nahuatl language and Hispanic African dialects. 
And there was a lot of this work collected today. It takes up four volumes. And a lot of that was published during her lifetime. In 1689, a collection titled Castilian Flood was published in Madrid, and then other editions of that work followed. Her work was collected into three volumes during her lifetime, which were all published in the years just before and after her death. Tomás de la Cerda was recalled to Spain in 1686, and some biographers point to this as the moment that Sor Juana lost all of her protection and prestige. But that's not exactly so. She had been writing and studying before the Marquess and his wife arrived, and she continued to do so afterward. She didn't have as much help getting her work published or performed or in front of the court, but it wasn't as though there was suddenly a switch flipped and no one was reading her work anymore. By 1690, she was one of the wealthiest nuns in her convent. That year, though, Sor Juana got caught up in a dispute between Manuel Fernandez de Santa Cruz, the Bishop of Puebla, and the Archbishop, Francisco de Aguiar de Cejas. The bishop asked Sor Juana to write a critique of a sermon that had been delivered 40 years before by Jesuit priest Antonio Vieira. When she did this, he published it without her permission, and when he published it, he added a letter ahead of it that both praised her work and scolded her for spending too much of her time on secular things rather than on religious matters. The bishop didn't sign this under his own name, though. He signed it Sor Philotia, framing it as this being the opinion of a fellow nun. The archbishop was a friend and a colleague of Antonio Vieira, who had written this sermon and had helped get that sermon published. So Sor Juana's criticism of the sermon had been arranged to kind of criticize the archbishop by proxy because the bishop of Puebla didn't get along with him. It's very complicated and petty. Yeah, she was essentially used as a tool by uh, squabbling men. Uh, Who knows what the Bishop of Puebla thought was going to happen when he pulled Sor Juana into this dispute. But what did happen is that a few months later, Sor Juana replied to Sor Filotea, defending both her actions and the right of women to learn. Her response is simultaneously really conciliatory and absolutely unyielding. Sor Juana starts off by praising Sor Filotea and expressing that she herself wasn't at all worthy to be writing this. Then she went on to say that her desire to learn wasn't something she had chosen for herself. It had come from beyond herself and was just part of her nature. She talked about her upbringing and her time in the convent and how it related to this desire to learn. She also gave examples from her life, like the time that a mother superior ordered her not to study from her books anymore, and that was an order that she obeyed, but she wasn't able to stop herself from studying whatever was around her. Like when she saw some children playing with a top, she scattered some flour onto the ground to see whether the tip made perfect circles when it made its way through it. I'm just curious. I can't help it. Uh, She also described how her desire to learn had mostly brought her hardship, because to be different was to be seen as evil, and because a mind like hers was not considered suitable for a woman. But she also writes about some of the exceptional women in the Bible, including Deborah, Esther, and the Queen of Sheba. It's a little reminiscent of the book of the City of Ladies, which we already have an episode on, if you would like to check that out. Over and over in this piece, Sorwana combines the idea that her intelligence and aptitude and desire to learn are a hardship because of her gender 
with the idea that it's also just natural to her. And it, she calls her poetry her, quote, twice unhappy ability, while she also says that it is such a core part of her that she has had to struggle not to write the letter in verse. Sor Juana's response was not formally published during her lifetime, but it was passed around in religious circles. And the reaction varied from place to place. She got some sympathy and support in Spain, but total derision in places where Antonio Vieira was especially revered. Her confessor, Antonio Nunez de Miranda, refused to see her. He was also reported as saying that if he had realized she was going to do all this writing, he would have seen her married instead. The archbishop demanded that Sor Juana give up her studies. He had criticized her secular studies before, so this was not new, but things definitely did escalate. This might have blown over. But in 1691, there were extensive floods in the region, and then there was a solar eclipse, and then that was followed by a plague of weevils, which people either blamed on the eclipse or thought the eclipse had predicted. This all, the the whole flooding and weevil infestation then led to a famine and food riots in 1692. The National Palace was attacked and burned during the riots, along with a lot of the market in the main square of Mexico City, on April 22nd of that year, Tomas de la Cerda died, so Sor Juana no longer had a former viceroy on her side, and his widow, who she had been so close to, was naturally occupied with other matters. This was a time of hardship and chaos for everybody, and everybody, including the church, was totally on edge. Sor Juana wrote her last published work during this time. That was a set of carols to St. Catherine of Alexandria. In 1693, she sold off her library and her collections of scientific and musical instruments, with the proceeds going to help the poor. She renewed her relationship with her former confessor, and on March 5, 1694, she wrote a repentance signed in her blood. That sounds very dramatic, but it was a fairly common practice at this time. After all of this, her cell was described as containing only three devotional books, along with some hair shirts and scourges, although after her death, it was found that she also still had some money and jewelry. A few months before her death, Sor Juana wrote this in the convent's book of professions. Quote, in this place is to be noted the day, month, and year of my death. For the love of God and his most holy mother, I entreat my beloved sisters, the nuns, who are here now and who shall be in the future, to commend me to God, for I have been and am the worst among them. Of them I ask forgiveness for the love of God and his mother. I, worst of all in the world, Juana Inez de la Cruz. This was not an unusual amount of self-judgment in these sorts of religious writings at the time, but it is still very evocative. So we don't have any of Sorwana's own writing about all this. Catholic biographers, especially in the 17th and 18th centuries, framed this as coming from devotion and from a sincere desire for Sorwana to rededicate herself to religious life. Other more recent biographers have described it as a punishment that was inflicted on her by an archbishop who was outraged over the events of 1690. Still others have suggested that it might have been more pragmatic. The younger Sor Juana had recognized that a convent was the best place for her to continue her studies, even though she didn't actually feel a religious calling to be there. The older Sor Juana may have thought that the best way to secure her future was to, at least for a time, put aside her secular study and writing. If that was the case, though, she didn't get the chance to see if she might return to her study and writing someday. 
In the spring of 1695, an epidemic struck the convent. It is sometimes described as plague and sometimes as a plague. I do not know (laughs) what type of plague it was. Regardless, though, Sarwana contracted it while caring for her religious sisters. She died on September 17, 1695, at the age of about 46. During her lifetime, Sorwana was nicknamed the Tenth Muse and the Phoenix of America. But her work fell out of view for a time after her death. An edition of her work was published in 1725, and that was it for more than 200 years. Also, laws banning communal ownership of property led to church archives being scattered and lost, including records and documents that were related to Sorwana. But interest in her work really started to be renewed after the turn of the 20th century, especially after the Mexican Revolution. The first modern edition of Sorwana's work was published in 1940. Multiple biographies have been written since then, including one by Mexican poet Octavio Paz. That was one of the sources for this episode. I highly recommend it, especially if you want to know more about her poetry, Uh, because this work is as much about literary criticism as it is about her actual biography. There's definitely more recent work about the biography itself, but having a work about her poetry being written by a Mexican poet is, like, particularly insightful in terms of her writing. Her life has also been the subject of numerous plays and movies and TV shows, including a 2016 miniseries called Juana Inez, which I haven't watched, but it's on Netflix. (laughs) There's so much on Netflix. Um, In the 1990s, Sorwana's convent was being refurbished, and a set of remains was found with a badge that was typical of the medallion that she usually wore. The badge was so worn that it was impossible to tell what was on it. Sorwana's had depicted the Annunciation, but it was more common for nuns to wear one depicting the Immaculate Conception. Mexican novelist Margarita Lopez Portillo, who was a scholar of Sor Juana, took the medallion home with her, which became a huge issue. Ultimately, she returned it, and the remains and the medallion were reinterred in the Church of San Jeronimo on the 320th anniversary of Sor Juana's death. Yeah, people, a, a lot of times these remains are described as belonging to her, and it's not impossible that they are hers. Uh, but the medallion that she wore was very commonly worn among nuns in her order during her time, uh, with the exception that hers had a different depiction on it than was more commonly worn. So it's a lot, it's it's not 100% certain that these were her remains, but they have been treated as though they are. Until very recently, Sorwana was on the 200 peso note. Redesigned bills that don't feature her anymore are entering circulation literally as we are recording this podcast. Her birthplace was also renamed. Now it's Nepantla de Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz. And her old convent is now a university that is named after her. She is a fascinating figure to me. And also a lot more complicated <laughs> than like a lot of the one-page write-ups that you will find about her like on online. A lot of times they're almost one-dimensional as sort of like, this is Sor Juana who was such a rebel. Uh, or this is Sorwana, who was like such a child prodigy. Or this is Sorwana, who was the first feminist. And that one is particularly troubling because none of those grapple with the fact that she enslaved people while she was in the comet. Yeah. Well, that's always the case, right? We discover right. over and over there's something that's come up or someone has asked us to do it because they're like, so and so was a vampire. And it's like, wait, wait, wait. Their life is way more nuanced than any of this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, that is why we do the work we do. Do you have a little bit of listener mail? 
I do have listener mail. It's from Alexia. We actually just got this email last night. And Alexia says, Dear Holly and Tracy, I was so excited to hear the episode on the Guatemalan coup. As we are recording this, the second part of that is not even out yet. The letter goes on, I love Latin American history, which is so important but so overlooked, in particular the complicated histories of 20th century Latin American countries. As an archivist, I had to reach out following this episode because one of the most important and endangered human rights archives is in Guatemala, and the more awareness, the better. The archive is the Archivo Histórico de la Policía Nacional, or the National Police Archives, which was discovered, in quotation marks, in 2006. And international investment created the AHPN as an independent entity, even though the records remained owned by the National Police. This archive documents the National Police going back to the early 1900s, but especially documents the human rights abuses in the later part of the 20th century, and especially during the most violent years of the Civil War. In the intervening years, there has been a post-custodial project between the AHPN and the University of Texas at Austin, where the original documents are maintained in Guatemala, but the digitized surrogates are housed at UT Austin for safekeeping. This archive is vital toward preserving the history of Guatemala, pursuing justice, and forgiving friends and family members answers about what happened to their loved ones. However, it is currently under extreme threat by the government, which has replaced its head with a politician, continues to threaten staff, and has even threatened UT Austin with a lawsuit that it is stealing its national heritage. More awareness is needed about this archive to hopefully save it, hence this email. For more information, please check out the links above or Kristen Weld's brilliant book, Paper Cadavers, about how the archive was created out of U.S. military training, maintained, and later rediscovered by activists. I've loved the podcast for years. I find it super helpful when processing collections. Best regards, Alexia. Thank you so much for this email, Alexia. I had not heard about this at all, but basically in uh, 2006, one of the oversight organizations that have been created in, in, in Guatemala found literally warehouses full of these um, full of these national police documents, literally millions of documents. And the decision was made to, in the interest of human rights and in the interest of reconciliation, to try to protect them from being destroyed and to make it transparent to people what had happened in the past. And so there was this huge effort involving digitizing these millions and millions of documents. And then over the last year or so, Things have shifted in, in terms of what I just read in the email. And the uh, the archive went from a staff of about 200 to, as of the last news article that I read about it this morning, more like 30. So it's been a huge issue that are, that people are uh, trying to, to make sure that the archive continues to be protected because it's an enormous wealth of information about all of this basically last century in Guatemalan history and documentation of all kinds of human rights issues that happened during that time. So thank you again, Alexia, for sending this email. If you would like to write to us, we're at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And then we're all over social media at Missed in History. You can find us on Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 